Um, welcome, uh, Gillian, um, to today's presentation about spiritual care. Thanks, Chloe. It's uh, really good to have this opportunity to speak to you and, and hopefully some others will, will uh, hear a bit about uh, what I've got to say today in, in some way or another. Uh, when you contacted me a few weeks ago to uh, ask if I would uh, present or to speak at, at your, your group, I was more than happy to agree. And uh, in, in thinking about uh, what I might talk about, uh, I, I just went to the obvious what is spiritual care? Who is it for? Who does it? So for a lot of people, spiritual care tends to mean religion or faith or belief. And whilst that's a part of what spiritual care can be for some people, it's not everything. Um, it's part of the person-centred care, that holistic care that we seek to offer to everybody in a health or social care setting. Um, it's part of that uh, that holistic care that I've spoken about, so that, that's the physical, the emotional, the psychological uh, and the, the spiritual. And it's about what's important to an individual. It's about what gives them a sense of purpose, some meaning in their life, uh, what gives them hope, um, even just what gets them out of bed in the morning. Uh, it, it's just about what drives them and, and what, what moves their spirit, if you like, their, their being. Um, as I said, it, it may include connection with uh, a religious um, group, a faith or belief context, but not necessarily. Uh, it could be something like um, their engagement with nature or music or reading, poetry, uh, socialising, you know, contact with friends and family and, and so on. Or perhaps for some people, something like meditation. So in the health and social care setting, uh, who is it for? Well, it's for everybody. It's for patients, relatives and carers and for staff. And uh, in terms of who does spiritual care, again, we all do it, but perhaps we do it without realising it a lot of the time. So as a student or as a nurse or as another healthcare professional in a health or social care setting, um, that time when you just stopped and took time to listen to the person that you were with, whether that was a colleague, a fellow student, a patient, another, you know, another member of staff, um, that time when you took just a little time to listen to them, to be there for them, then without realising that you're doing spiritual care. So everybody in the health and social care setting um, does it, as I say, perhaps without realising. But chaplains, would, we would be considered the experts. You know, in the same way, I can't do the job that a nurse does on the ward. Uh, I wouldn't expect a nurse to do the job the job that I do. So we all do it. Uh, we just perhaps do it in different ways or at different levels. And it could be staff to patients. It could be staff to colleagues, uh, patients to patients. And a really good example of that um, demonstration of spiritual care between patients. Uh, I remember when I was based at Woodend Hospital, uh, when I first came into chaplaincy and there was a, a lady who was in the ortho orthopaedic rehabilitation unit for uh, close to a year, actually. She'd had an amputation in ARI and she came over to, to Woodend for her rehabilitation. And that took much longer than she had hoped for all sorts of reasons. And she was in the same bed, in the same six bed dorm for almost a year. So the other five people in that dorm 
uh, changed over that period. You know, not many, I don't think there was anyone else in that dorm that, that was there for as long as she was. And what I noticed about her was just how, uh, how much of a comfort and a support she was to the other patients. And that did come from a faith context in that particular lady, because she just had that natural desire to look out for other people, to care for other people, um, and, and just, just relate to them and the problems that, that they had. Uh, so yeah, that's an example of where patients do spiritual care. And she would be the one where uh, we would have had services on a Sunday morning at Woodend and we will continue them once COVID restrictions allow. But uh, she would be the one who came to the services regularly and would encourage the people that came into her dorm or into the ward uh, to come to the services as well. And because they were a very, uh, they were faith-based services, but they were very generic, you know, they were very inclusive. Um, she would often have people come into the services that would never have thought about going to them before. So just a wee example of, of the, the, as I say, the, the patients doing spiritual care. It's not just about the staff uh, or the students. In terms of who we are as chaplains and where we come from, well, we come from all different backgrounds. And just to go back maybe oh, 15 to 20 years up until 15 years or so ago, the majority of people in hospital chaplaincy jobs would have come from uh, what we would call the parish ministry. So they would have come from a, a, a faith background, uh, people who had been ministers or priests or uh, vicars or, or whatever. Uh, but over the last 10 years or so, there's been a bit of a change in that respect, in that we have very few that have come in via that route in the last 10 years. The majority have come from uh, a, a non-clergy background, for want of a better expression. But what we do bring is we bring uh, relevant qualifications. So in normal cases, that in, in most cases, that would be a relevant degree. So theology, religious studies, divinity, you know, something like that. But we, we can also recruit people who've perhaps got a, a degree in, in pastoral care or counselling or, or something like that, but just a relevant qualification. Uh, we would also look for people to have experience of what we would call pastoral care. So it's just that, you know, caring for people's needs um, and not, not the physical needs. Uh, and and in my own case, uh, I came into chaplaincy having done my degree, but having built up experience in the voluntary sector and through my church life uh, for um, look, looking after people and caring for people. Uh, the healthcare setting, the health and social care setting, as we refer to it now, but the healthcare setting is a very unique setting. Um, and and not everybody is comfortable going into that sort of setting. So it is important that you have you have a, even if you haven't worked in a hospital or a health centre or whatever, it's important that you have the ability to to relate to people with healthcare needs. Um, so people who are ill, people who are very ill, people who are struggling with with one thing or another. So in terms of where we are in NHS Grampian, well, we have a presence in all the main hospitals. Uh, so all the main hospitals in Aberdeen, ARI, Woodend, Roxburgh, Cornhill, uh, Children's Hospital, um, 
we don't have a presence in the maternity hospital, but we cover the maternity hospital. And I'll, I'll touch on that in, in a minute when I speak about some of our own call activity in particular. Uh, we also have a presence in most of the community hospitals, but obviously on a part time basis. Uh, and for the places that we don't have a specific presence in, um, for me, it's really important that they still know how to access spiritual care for themselves as staff or for the people that they're in, they're in contact with. I'll just pause there for a minute to maybe to ask if you've got any questions before I go on to some of the other things I was going to speak about. Thank you, Gillian. No, I don't think so. I think um, everything that I had written down, you've answered. So thank you. OK, I'll just I'll just carry on then. Uh, in terms of where we are in NHS Grampian, as in uh, the directorate that we sit in, we have relatively recently moved into the nursing midwifery and allied health professions directorate or NMAP for short as I'm sure you're aware it's it's called uh, and that happened just over a year ago so uh, my line manager but one is uh, Jean Ewan who's nurse director for excellence and innovation who I think you know and you've had some contact with uh, and Jane became our executive lead uh, just over a year ago as when we moved into the NMAP directorate. Prior to that, we were in the corporate communications directorate. And that was a it was a bit of a historical thing, really. Uh, and and it, it was OK of its time, but I think there was a recognition and looking at other um, spiritual care departments in the other parts of Scotland, most of them sit within more of a nursing or AHP uh, directorate in terms of their, their line management. Uh, so it, I think it was right that, that we moved into that directorate last year and it came about as a, as a bit of a restructuring move uh, from what I remember. Um, what I would say about Jane is, and I, and I said this to her myself just recently, is just how um, quickly she grasped the uh, the significance of the work that we do in chaplaincy and uh, just how interested and engaged she has been in our work from from day one really uh, and that's that's really that's really good for us because when you have someone at, at that sort of level uh, you know that 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 your voice will be heard and it's really important that that our voice um, is is heard so uh, as I was saying to you before we came on this call properly, Chloe, um, from the beginning of August, I'll take up post as head of spiritual care and uh, Jane will be my then direct line manager and I'm, and I'm looking forward to working with her. Uh, just to touch on, uh, I, I mentioned uh, how people come into chaplaincy and the sort of qualifications and experience that we have. Uh, in addition to that, we have what's called voluntary registration with the Professional Standards Authority. Uh, so chaplains don't have to be registered, but there is a drive for them to be registered. And, and you know, that in order for our profession to be recognised by other professions, it's really important that, that we go down that road. And registration, as it does for most professions, uh, nursing, uh, included uh, is is pretty rigorous. Uh, we're expected to meet lots of criteria. We have to pay an annual fee. Uh, we also have to submit what's called a, an annual CPD summary. And in that we've got to give evidence of uh, our practice, of our continuing learning, 
um, of reading and research that, that we've engaged with as well. Uh, so it's not just a case of paying our fee and and you know renewing our registration. It's uh, in January each year we get a reminder about uh, our, our registration and um, the the CPD summary is something that's really important and that we do have to take a bit of time over. And there's no guarantee that uh, they'll accept what we say. You know they might come back to us and say they I speak about the that that is the registrar. So the the UK Board of Healthcare Chaplains are the body that we're registered with, and the registrar can come back to us and say, well, I don't think you've had enough experience in that. Um, tell me more about this. You know, show me a bit more evidence of uh, of your involvement in research, or or you know, you you said you read that book. What did you actually learn from it? How is it going to change your practice? That sort of thing. Uh, so that's a bit more about us as a, as a profession. Uh, and probably a wee bit connected to that is the fact that we are now, as you see, in uniform. And that came about in April last year as a result of COVID. And it, it was it, it was primarily about keeping us and everyone else safe, uh, including our own families. Um, because if you can imagine, think back to last sort of March, April time when things were pretty bad in terms of the number of cases and the people dying and so on. Uh, it was really important for us to be able to, to have something that we could wear in work uh, that we didn't then go home in um, and, and so on. So in the same way that uh, nurses, other healthcare professionals uh, have uniform for work, then we've gone into that. There was a wee bit of a question at the beginning because we, we had no option but to go into the, the pale blue, which is the healthcare support worker or physio assistant. Sometimes in the early days, people thought I was a physio or a physio assistant or an OT. Uh, but we relatively recently got these um, chaplain's badges, which we'll have forever uh, because they're pretty robust. Uh, and and that, that's been a great thing for those, for people who don't know me here, although there's not a lot of people that don't know me here, but for people who don't know me, at least when they see that, they know that I'm the chaplain. But uh, yeah, the reason we had to go into the pale blue was because we're we're not allowed to go into any of the nursing colours, because uh, I think the, uh, is it the RGN, the or RCN, Royal College of Nursing? Uh, I think, I think they, they would have um, put a stop to that. But there are other boards in Scotland where I don't think that has been acknowledged. Uh, anyway, we went into the pale blue and I've been happy to be in uniform all this time. Whether we continue to be in uniform going forward, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, if, if we do continue to stay in uniform, then we would probably be looking to uh, explore other colours for the, the polo shirts. Um, from a personal point of view, I've found it very helpful, apart from making sure I've got plenty of uniform for the week. I don't have to think about what I'm wearing in the morning other than just, you know, jeans or leggings or whatever and a T-shirt to come come into work in the morning. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's just a little bit about our uniform. Um, the only the kind of only other things I was going to speak about, and, and they are significant really because they are about the, the core purpose of what I do and, 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 and the function that we have here. Uh, maybe three three areas that I'll cover, and then that's probably just about it. But three areas I'll cover, and and I'll also just say a little bit about where uh, staff and students can access further resources. So uh, 
In terms of how people can make contact with us or make referrals to us, well, any student or member of staff can refer themselves or a patient or perhaps a relative. And, and what I found prior to COVID, but less so during COVID, was in the mental health setting and sometimes in the learning disability setting as well, a lot of the support I gave was to the relatives or carers of people in hospital because they were struggling. Um, we know that there's still a bit of stigma around mental health and if, if someone is admitted to Cornhill, particularly just now, they generally are pretty unwell. Um, the, 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 the demand for beds is such that you have to be pretty unwell to actually get a bed here at the moment. Uh, and, and I hope that, that, you know, that that does improve in time. But yeah, a lot of our, our support would have been for um, relatives, but patients on the wards. Uh, and in the, again, in the past, there's so much that we speak about pre-COVID, during COVID and, and post-COVID. But uh, before COVID, when the hospitals weren't in lockdown, then members of the public could come in to any of the hospitals and just rock up at our door. You know, uh, we have a little chap, we're in a porta cabin at, at one end of the Cornhill site and uh, next to my office is a, is a small chapel. And that's been a real uh, boost because uh, it's a safe space, as in we can safely meet with all the COVID restrictions because it's big enough for, you know, up to six people to gather. But it's really good for just somewhere to have a one-to-one -one with someone. So we don't get those um, as many drop-ins in terms of outpatients or uh, perhaps relatives, uh, but we still get uh, drop-ins in terms of inpatients and, and staff uh, as well. So as I say, people can um, refer a patient, they can refer themselves or they can refer a relative. Um, there's there's no need for a sort of formal referral. We do have a referral form and if someone asks for it and it's helpful for that to be completed, then I'll send that on to them because we hold that electronically. Uh, but uh, people can just phone up, we take the details and, you know, I'll, I'll go and see them on the ward when, when I get the time. Uh, I have two assistants here, so, you know, between us, we cover all the wards uh, in, in Cornhill, including the, the learning disabilities one. <clears throat> so that's a bit about contacts and referrals. Uh, just some examples of the, the work that we do. We, we, we very much listen and, and the, the great thing is we, we have the luxury of time to listen. Uh, and, and often people will say, whether it's staff or patients, they'll say, oh, I'm sure you're too busy. You know, you don't have time for this. And I'll say, well, no, that's actually why I'm here. That's that's a big part of my job. So we, we are there to listen, to support, um, to perhaps uh, connect them or help people reconnect with what's important to them, because particularly in the mental health setting or to be fair, in, in any health setting, if you are unwell in whatever way, sometimes you lose sight of the things that are important to you or the things that are meaningful or the things that, that have sustained you before because you're so caught up in that illness, you know, whether it's of body or, or mind. Uh, one of the things that thankfully I don't do an awful lot, but they tend to come in in a bit like buses, there's not one for ages and then there's several at once, and that is funerals. Uh, and in the first half of this year, I think I've done one, two, three, I think I've probably done about half a dozen. So that kind of averages about one a month. Um, 
some of them have been directly work related, uh, some uh, kind of straddle work and personal. Uh, one of the things that I do in my spare time is I'm involved with our local Highland League football club and I'm their nominated chaplain. Uh, and, and I say nominated because it is. It, Uh, so, um, sadly, there were a couple of deaths in connection with the, the football club um, uh, earlier on in the year, back in March, and uh, I conducted the funerals for, for two people, uh, one very strongly connected with the club and one the, the mother of, of our uh, current chairman. Uh, so, yeah, funerals are, are something that I do. And it, it's interesting because I sometimes think back to a minister that I had contact with a few years ago. And he said, uh, he said, you know, funerals are the easiest part of my job. And I remember thinking at the time, how on earth can someone say that? But in some ways, because the because the format is pretty prescribed, and if you're, for example, doing a service at the crematorium, you have a 25 minute time slot. So there are certain things that you have to fit in in that 25 minutes. So from that point of view, yes, it is quite straightforward and um, and routine, I guess. But I think personally, it very much depends on the, the involvement that I've had with the family. Uh, in the run up to the person dying and how well I know them, uh, what I always aim for, and it's back to what I started with about that person centred care. I always try to make sure that it's a person centred approach to the, to the funeral and and the best compliment that I can get as a, as a chaplain or as, as a person of faith, really, um, is after a funeral when someone says uh, you, you really came across like you knew that person. And, and I've done funerals for people who I've never met. But, you know, in gathering the information from the family or the staff that have looked after them, then you, you get a picture of that person. And, and it's my place to, to, to paint that picture in the, the funeral service. Uh, other thing that I touched on briefly earlier on was uh, services. I spoke about them at Wood End. So we would normally in Cornhill um, have a service every Sunday morning. Uh, it's it's held in the waiting area for outpatients um, section of the hospital. But because of COVID, we've not been able to do that. And that's been for a number of reasons, uh, partly because we can't have volunteers in the hospital just now, and they would normally assist with us on a Sunday morning. And partly, well, two things really, um, we wouldn't be allowed to sing, and singing is quite a big part of it for a lot of people. And and also, and I, I keep meaning to check this. I will need to check it soon. Um, we th th there was a a kind of rule against uh, people from different wards mixing. Uh, so you know, obviously, in in order to minimise the the risk of infection spreading. So lots of reasons, but I really hope that we can get them back up and running soon. But I think it'll probably be later in the year. Uh, and just, just not quite finally, second but last, uh, we provide, and a lot of people don't know this, we provide an on-call cover. So there is a chaplain available 24-7. So we have a rota whereby uh, someone is on call Monday to Friday out with hours. So basically half four on a Monday until half eight on a Friday. Um, they, they'll carry a I know I probably can't, you probably can't believe we still use these things, but we, we still use these little pagers. Um, so 
uh, from let's say Monday to Friday and then Friday at half past eight until Monday morning someone uh, switches on, someone else switches off, someone someone else switches on and uh, any anyone can set off the on-call chaplain pager uh, out with hours. Uh, the kind of things that we would respond to that couldn't wait till the next day uh, tend not to be particularly happy or good situations. So examples of the sort of things we might respond to, particularly over a weekend, would be a baby blessing. So where there's been an early pregnancy loss um, down at Rubus Law Ward at the maternity hospital, then we can offer uh, a a religious or non-religious blessing uh, for, for the family in those circumstances. Um, in the other hospitals, it tends to be, uh, again, not particularly happy situations. So helping someone deal with bad news, be that the patient or the family, it could be bereavement. You know, there's been a, there's been a, a death and the family needs some support or perhaps someone's coming to end of life and they want a particular ritual. Uh, or they want prayers said, or they just want someone to be with them, not necessarily for anything religious. Uh, and and if there's a specific uh, faith or belief request, then we have contact with uh, all the main faith groups in the area, and and some that are not local, but we can put in touch with. We can put families in touch with. Uh, but uh, you know, we have a Roman Catholic priest on call all the time as well and we have someone from the Scottish Episcopal Church uh, and also the the local um, imam uh, so that covers the, the local mosque in Aberdeen and we've we've had a lot of involvement thankfully not so much of late but in the early days of Covid last year we were involved in the end of life protocol and that was around a uh, supporting families and facilitating families to visit their loved ones at end of life because when the hospital went into lockdown and people came into hospital with COVID uh, and were very unwell families weren't allowed in to visit them at all uh, so we, we were involved in facilitating those end of life visits and that was that was it was heartbreaking in the one hand, but such a privilege to be able to, to do that because we were able to take them to the quiet room off the chapel at ARI. We were able to let them leave their bags and things, coats, whatever. We offered them refreshments. We took them down to intensive care. We went back for them. Uh, and sometimes they were there when they took that call to say their loved one had passed away. We were able to help them with funeral arrangements and, and the, just the formalities and so on around that. And that's that's a very whistle stop tour uh, of, of what I do, what we do, what spiritual care and chaplaincy is all about. Uh, I think you can probably guess I could speak for Britain on, on the subject because <laughs> I'm so passionate about it. Uh, and what I'll probably do after our call, Chloe, is um, I'll send you a link to both the NHS Grampian website and where you can get information, documents and stuff, and also the internet. Because uh, one, one you follow the services route and the other one you follow the departments. But I can send you the links to both of those. Uh, and there's some other resources on there that people can look at as well. So happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Gillian, for your time. Um, no, I just had a little question about some of the research um, aspects. You were you mentioned a wee bit about that, so that's my mm -hmm. question. Wow, that's that's a uh, that's a wee bit of a challenging one. So my own experience of research is more the theory 
rather than the, the actual research. And the reason for that is uh, when I came in, what I didn't mention when I was speaking about qualifications was that uh, in addition to coming into chaplaincy with a relevant degree, uh, there, there is also an expectation that we have the postgraduate certificate in healthcare chaplaincy or we're willing to work towards it. And that sits within a master's programme in advanced practice in healthcare with the University of Glasgow. So uh, I did the postgrad certificate between 2014 and 2016. And then when I got promoted into the mental health chaplain's role in 2017, I, I had to go back and complete the full programme. So I went back and did three modules to get my diploma and then the master's um, project in my final year. So two of the three modules that I did in my uh, diploma year were about research. So there were uh, research approaches in healthcare and applying research approaches in healthcare. So I had to learn all the uh, language of research, which if you're not familiar with, you will become familiar with as your time as a student continues, particularly towards your dissertation year. But what I noticed about uh, in the work that I was doing on that course was the lack of research around spiritual care in Scotland. And that has been addressed because it is, it is a condition of registration as a healthcare chaplain that you are involved in research. Now, that doesn't mean, mean that you actually have to be doing the research, but you have to take an interest in it. You have to be aware of what's going on uh, and so on. So my particular focus for my a final year project was around dementia and uh, in particular what the experiences of professional and informal caregivers were in relation to the spiritual needs being met of those with dementia and what I discovered not surprisingly was uh, first of all there wasn't a lot of research in fact, virtually nothing in Scotland. Uh, there was a couple of UK papers. The majority of the research uh, in healthcare, and I don't know if you've discovered this or not, but the majority of the research, uh, Scandinavia seems very popular, Australia and America. Uh, quite a lot in Asia and the Middle East as well. But uh, yeah, um, in terms of Europe as a, as a whole, uh, the, the focus definitely seemed to be around Scandinavia, but in Belgium, the Netherlands and, and so on. But uh, yeah, I, if I had the time and I could be a full time researcher, I would love to be doing that. Uh, but maybe that's for when I retire. <laughs> Thank you, Gillian. That's really interesting. And, and like you say, um, spiritual care is a really important part of nursing care. And we've now had um, an overview of what you do in your role and, you know, how we can, you know, use your services for our patients um, so thank you very much i'm going to start you're welcome i'm going to start the recording okay. unless there's anything else you'd like to add thank you